Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on June 1st of 2021 under the headline, Shipwreck Treasure Peaked FBI's Interest a Day Too Late. Here we go. Dawn was just breaking, and Tom McAdams had just barely crawled into bed when he got the alarm. A 50-foot sailboat was washing ashore near Waldport. McAdams had been up all night escorting a leaky fishing boat into port after it got caught in a bad storm 20 miles offshore. Now it was the morning of December 13, 1973, and it was his wife Joanne's birthday. He'd planned on snatching four or five hours of sleep and then maybe doing something with Joanne. Instead, now he was sprinting across the street to Newport's U.S. Coast Guard station and jumping a fence and bounding into his 44-foot rescue lifeboat. McAdams was a Master Chief Petty Officer in the United States Coast Guard and still is, albeit retired. He's now in his 80s. In 1973, he was the commander of the Newport Station and was already probably the most famous enlisted man in Coast Guard history, a title he certainly holds today. By the time he retired in 1977, he had personally rescued hundreds of people and taught hundreds of other rescuers how it was done. On this particular morning, though, there wouldn't be much for McAdams to do. He raced out across the Yaquina Bay Bar, which was rough, but it takes a lot to stop a 44 from crossing any river bar and turned south. But by the time he'd gone a mile or so, the station radioed that the yacht had gone up on the beach, out of reach for a rescue boat. Other coasties, rescue swimmers Greg Albrecht, Louis Cavina, and Bill Maston, were on their way down Highway 101 to the beach. Saving the people on the boat would be up to them. When the rescue swimmers arrived, they found a middle-aged couple struggling feebly in the icy surf in their life jackets, trying to swim to shore. The rescuers quickly got them out of the water and onto dry land. The couple's names were Helen and Joe Browning. Both were in their mid-fifties. They told their rescuers they'd sold their business in San Diego and bought their $150,000 sailboat, a two-masted, steel-hulled motor sailor that they named, probably ironically in search of future events, the Quesera Sera. Then, perhaps lulled into a false sense of security by the size of the boat and the perpetually lovely weather in San Diego, They set out on what they hoped would be their new retirement dream life, first sailing around the world and then just tooling around from port to port having adventures. They would start off with a shakedown cruise to Port Orford to visit Helen's sister. But on the way, they ran head-on into a massive storm system off Gold Beach. Port Orford was not a good place to try to put into during a storm, so they pressed on under diesel power, hoping to make Coos Bay as the weather steadily worsened. Then the engine died, and the steering malfunctioned, and the couple was left helpless in the storm. By now they'd been up for 48 hours straight and were exhausted, so they threw the anchor overboard, waited for it to catch, confirmed that it was holding, and went to bed. They were awakened by the jolt of the keel of their boat, slamming into the sandy ocean bottom just off the beach north of Newport, and this is how they learned that the Quesara Sera's anchor was too small. 
It had slowed their shoreward drift and kept them heading into the wind rather than rolling in the trough of the sea, but it had been dragging through the sandy bottom all night long, and now they could see that they were done for. Their boat was going onto the beach. There would be nothing they could do about that. But it would be doing it in slow motion, which would make it very difficult for them to get off safely. Because it was a sailboat, the Kesarasara had a deep keel. A 50-foot motor sailor doesn't draw a lot of water compared with, say, a steam schooner, but it's 7 to 10 feet, which is plenty enough to drown in, especially in the outer breakers on a stormy day. The Browning's 9-foot dinghy had been smashed by the heavy seas, so they got out their emergency life raft and pulled the inflation cord. The raft burst into its full size, and then the wind grabbed it, and away it soared. McAdams' men later found it several miles away. So Helen and Joe decided to swim for it in their life jackets. They tied themselves together and jumped in the drink. Of course, they were likely already plenty cold when they did this, and they weren't going to get any warmer splashing around in the 48-degree water off Waldport, nor were they able to make much headway through the double set of storm-driven breakers to the shore. Luckily, rescuers Mastin, Kavina, and Albrecht arrived at the scene before the couple's hypothermia reached fatal levels. But yes, they were both highly hypothermic when they were rescued. So the Brownings were whisked to the hospital and their lives saved by the slimmest of margins. The pounding surf drove the Kesarasara higher and higher on the beach until it was stuck on its side right in the midst of the inner breakers. McAdams filed his reports, congratulated his crew, and figured his work was done. He figured wrong. McAdams got a phone call at his home the day after the rescue. It was Joe Browning. He'd traveled to the Coast Guard station at 8 p.m. immediately after his release from the hospital and asked to speak with McAdams. He'd been so distraught that the Coasties had called up McAdams and put Browning on the line with him. Can you help me? Browning asked. Well, what do you need? Well, I don't want to talk over a regular phone. Could you come to the station? So McAdams strolled across the street to the Coast Guard station. He found Joe Browning waiting anxiously for him. My life savings are in that boat, he said. I've got a bag of gold, and it's hidden in the air duct vent in the main salon. By a bag of gold, Browning meant 18 pounds of uncirculated British gold sovereigns. At the time, the hoard was worth about $60,000. At mid-2021 gold prices, that would be well over half a million. McAdams agreed to do what he could to retrieve it for him. Over the next few days, the Coast Guard crew spent a lot of time on the beach trying to get into that boat. Another storm blew in the next day and tore off both masts and buried most of the boat in the sand. For a couple of days, the Coasties visited the wreck site at each low tide, but every time they thought they might be able to get to it, a storm would kick up. Then the phone rang in the Coast Guard station again, and it was a newspaper reporter, almost certainly from the Newport News Guard, although McAdams doesn't specify. They called me up and said, uh, how come your crew is down there almost every night on that boat? What's going on? I said, well, the fellow's got a restaurant in San Diego and a home there and all his papers and his insurance papers and his mortgages and those are all on board the boat. Those papers might have been on board the boat or they might not as far as McAdams knew, but he also knew that if the newspapers got wind of a giant hoard of gold buried on that boat, there would be trouble. I know there would have been people down there with bulldozers and dynamite and everything else and shooting everybody up. McAdams said. I didn't know how much gold was there, but he said his life savings. Finally, the weather cleared and the tide went out. With the help of the Newport Fire Department's metal cutting saw and dredging pump, they cut a hole in the salon, blasted out the sand, and managed to get in far enough to reach Browning's life savings. 
McAdams took the gold back and stuck it in his safe. Then he sent a message to his district commanders, came clean to the newspaper people about the restaurant papers, and called Browning to come pick up his gold. Uh, yeah, I'll be up in a few days to get it, Browning told him. The next day, though, McAdams got a message from the United States State Department. Do not give gold back until release. McAdams figured they were checking Browning out, making sure he wasn't a bank robber on the lam. He had, after all, been preparing to leave the country with all that money. Sure enough, just after New Year's Day, the State Department notified him that the gold could be returned to its owner. And by God, the next day the owner showed up, McAdams recalled. We went to the bank, he paid for the deposit box we had there, we broke it out, here's all your coins, I said. Browning gratefully accepted his treasure and signed the receipt, gave McAdams $200 to treat his crew as a thank you, and hit the road. Just in time, apparently. The next day I got a message from the State Department saying, My message so-and-so canceled. Do not, do not give gold back, McAdams said. McAdams replied instantly that it was too late, the gold was gone, and within an hour or so of sending the message, an FBI agent called on the phone from the Bureau's Salem office. I'll be down in an hour, the agent said, and he was, too. He covered the 82 miles, which Google Maps estimates takes 93 minutes to travel, in just over an hour. So he must have been flying. McAdams gave him all the receipts and things, and he took them back to Salem, and that was the last McAdams ever heard about it. So, what was the deal? Was there something sinister about this half-million-dollar bag of gold? Well, almost certainly not. For a retired couple embarking on a sailing voyage around the world, deciding to carry all their money as hard British currency may not have been a good idea, but it was certainly an understandable one. Likely the FBI just wanted to check things out and was late getting its request into the State Department. But, you know, one still has to wonder. Key sources in this story included an oral history interview of Tom McAdams recorded on February 13, 2004 by Foundation for Coast Guard History and the archives of the Portland Morning Oregonian from 1973. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.